Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Last Night in Soho, currently in theaters. Directed by Edgar Wright, the film stars Thomas and McKenzie as an aspiring fashion designer in modern London who experiences a mysterious link to a 1960s club singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 72%, and the critics' consensus reads, although it struggles to maintain its thrilling early momentum, Last Night in Soho shows flashes of Edgar Wright at his most stylish and ambitious. My guest today is Julian Slater, the re-recording mixer and supervising sound editor for the film. Julian, you've been working in post-production sound since 1993. Last Night in Soho is your sixth collaboration with Edgar Wright, and the sound work on your last collaboration, Baby Driver, earned you Oscar and BAFTA nominations. Welcome to Below the Line. Hello, thanks for having me. Julian, glad you're here. Listeners, please consider this your spoiler warning. We're going to deep dive into the sound editing for some specific scenes of the film, and we're going to reveal some plot points. If you haven't yet seen it, or if you're waiting for a home release, number one, you should go see it in the theater. But either way, you should pause this podcast and come back to it later. But first, let's talk for a bit about your background, Julian. How'd you get started in film? I uh, knew I wanted to get into sound in some way, shape, or form. I didn't really know what it was. I I was the generation with the Walkman where, you know, I used to go to bed each night when like as a seven or eight year old just listening to music. I used to just surround myself with music and I used to do like, used to with my friends do spoof radio shows with cassettes and pause button editing and all that kind of stuff. And I think subconsciously, I mean, I remember seeing the Ben Burt documentary about, you know, how he made the lasers and all that kind of stuff. There was a particular music video that I remember watching which was the police every little thing she does is magic when they're on the mixing desk at Montserrat and I distinctly remember looking at thinking my gosh that looks really cool I'll make this very short I basically went to a place called the school of audio engineering to learn to be to learn to be a music engineer and as part of that kind of year-long course I had work experience at a music library in London called DeWolf Music for two weeks there they at the end they said do you want to come and work here I said yes and then from there, I went from the tape library to the sound effects library. And that's how I kind of found my way from going from kind of music production into sound effects librarian to then sound designer, company owner, you know, jack of all trades, possibly master of none. And yeah, and that's kind of what I've been doing ever since, doing those three disciplines of sound designer, supervising sound editor, and then the re-recording mixer. And so what were some of your early projects that we might be aware of or just sort of what was it like in the beginning as far as getting started as part of that team? When I started at this, the, the company that I later became co-owner of, there was literally just three of us, three of us. And we were doing commercials, doing you know, local TV shows that went out on a Sunday afternoon at tea time. And uh, well, then we started to get into doing some comedy. We'd, and I don't know if you know, there's a guy called Chris Morris, who's highly revered in the UK, does very, did do very, very edgy comedy. So we, we were split between doing kind of edgy comedy that was known for its risk taking and also sonic risk taking. There'd be like spoof 16 millimeter and eight millimeter documentaries that we would treat uh, accordingly. And I would have fun like dubbing it onto eight mil and then walking on it and pouring tea over it and then lacing it back on to get the, the dropouts. And then we started to get into more commercialized feature films. We did Leaving Las Vegas for Mike Figgis and then BBC One dramas that were kind of pretty high rated BBC dramas. And then I think it was through the, the Chris Morris connection and the fact that we had done a lot of comedy 
Edgar Wright turns up, or the script turns up for some movie called Shaun of the Dead. I had never seen Space. I'd heard of it. I had never seen it. I had a meeting with Edgar. And I guess you could say the rest of the history. And it's so bizarre to say that because, you know, obviously like 16, 17 years later, you know, there's many a times when you work with someone and nine times out of 10, that relationship doesn't really go anywhere. Either the person stops making movies or for what, you know, very rarely do you get long-term relationships that I've been lucky to be part of. So yeah, six movies later and I'm, it's still going. And so I'd like to talk more about sort of the collaboration process over that time. The way things started at the beginning, did it develop film to film um, as you guys continued to work together? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's definitely developed our knowledge of each other's working desires, practices, methodology. That's obviously developed enormously. I would say perhaps one of the things that has changed is we come on much earlier as a sound team. We come on much earlier onto the process than we used to do with Edgar's movies. You know, I think since World's End, actually we've been coming on pretty early since all of them, but on like not take, take last night in Soho, for example, we, the sound crew started on week through director's cut, which enabled Edgar and Paul Matchless, the picture editor to concentrate on the picture side of things and perhaps not do quite so much sound work as they have done before. I think on past movies, Edgar has done an awful lot of building of the soundscape in the Avid and then handed it over to us for us to kind of expand on it and replace and change out whatever. But nowadays we kind of build it from the ground up and we are there from the very early stages of the director's cut. So I guess that's, that's changed. And just like I say, and I think I've said this before, because Edgar, he's got his team, you know, this team Edgar, it's his picture editor, his composer, Stephen Price, there's myself and even my crew are people that I've worked with for, in some instances, over 20 years. So there's that familiarity that means that, you know, we're not, no one's trying to second guess anyone and everyone knows what we're trying to achieve, which, you know, I think breeds out great results. Julia, I thought I read somewhere that on Ant-Man, which is a film that Edgar was going to direct, but then left, that you were actually involved even before the filming yourself, that you had come on board that early. Is that correct? I'd moved to America. <laughs> I'd moved to, yeah, that was a strange one. To answer your question, but also kind of deviate a little from your question. I, I mean, I had spent a good 10 years wanting, I, I was lucky to get nominated for an Emmy a couple of times, came over here and fell in love with Los Angeles and just totally fell in love with it. But the chances of coming over here, I just knew were very slim. And Edgar had been talking about Ant-Man for, you know, for, for quite a time. We'd done a, a demo reel of it. And when it eventually got greenlit and he had said to Marvel, you know, I want Julian to be my sound guy, I was very lucky enough to get job offers over here that kind of gave me that jumping point to move from England over to LA. So I grabbed it with both hands and, uh, and came over here. Now, what happened, of course, is that, you know, I'd been over here for only like three or four months. I think I was due to start doing some pre-design and uh, the whole thing disintegrated and Edgar, you know, wasn't part of it and you know I wasn't going to be part of it clearly a because I was part of team Edgar and b I think Marvel just wanted to pull everything in house and make it you know use people they were familiar with which was totally understandable I, I suddenly realized I had a year's worth of work had disappeared I had no contacts I didn't know anybody every producer picture editor director that I'd worked with was over in England and I'm um, 
I kind of felt like I was staring into the abyss. So I kind of had to start from scratch. Well, I did. I, I feel like I had to start from scratch. I hadn't started, but the trigger was about to be pulled and I had a year's worth of work literally lined up. And I, I, I had the very luxurious prospect of moving to Los Angeles and having a year's worth of work already organized for me. And on top of that, it was for a director that I knew and had worked with before. And it was a Marvel movie. So it was like, it felt like I was going straight in and being fast-tracked, but um, alas, it was not to be. And so it's an important note, maybe, that while you've worked with Edgar Sawa during this time, your role does not fall necessarily the same track as the director. And so there are other projects that you need to do. How did you make up for that? Or what other notable or influential projects were you involved in during this time? I think historically, Edgar kind of does a movie once every three years. You know, there are some directors who I work with who direct other people's scripts. Uh, and they generally turn, and, I, and forgive me if I'm you know, stating the obvious, but those directors kind of churn out movies a lot quicker because they're not spending you know, a long time developing and getting the, the script perfect. Edgar does do that. So if I was to only work for Edgar, I, I would have a sparse career. So I intersperse the Edgar movies, which are once every three years, with everything and everything that I can you know, get my hands on. And in fact, it's great because one of the things I love about my job is that it is so varied and diversified and you know the different directors all think about sound in some different way to the next one so yeah I mean I've been pretty lucky when I was in England I did a lot of kind of art housey kind of movies I would say things like um, In Bruges and uh, like Leaving Las Vegas uh, The Other Berlin Girl and then over here I've been lucky to do you know when I first got here I was doing much I was doing the kind of tier one five million dollar movies just to try and start again and then I've been lucky enough then to work on you know I'm working with Aaron Sorkin right now you know the Jumanji movies um, and I've always said if I could do an Edgar Wright movie and then another movie whatever that is whether that's a Jumanji or if it's an Aaron Sorkin or whether it's a Conjuring or whether it's whatever it is then I'm a happy chap because you know as you can see from Edgar's movies he is changing as a filmmaker so you know doing an Edgar Wright movie is not necessarily one particular thing anymore it's it's continuing to develop and change which I'm you know very happy to be part of. Well, let's take a few minutes and tell me what it was like to be Oscar nominated for Baby Driver. It was totally surreal totally bizarre I had no well to, just to go back a little bit so to do Baby Driver I left my lovely wife and two boys in total for seven months to go back to England to do the job. And me and my lovely crew, amazing crew, Dan Morgan, the dialogue ADR supervisor, who's actually co-supervising last night with me, Jeremy Price, Arthur Grayley, just a bunch of amazing people. I'm sure I'm forgetting people. And when we were doing it, we knew, we felt we were doing something really different and interesting. And I, I remember I review we'd have weekly reviews where I would get goosebumps, which is just something you don't normally do. But the concept of anybody else picking up on it and, it, and anyone saying to me, congratulations, was totally, I mean, it was, it really didn't, it, wouldn't, it never figured in my mind at all. The closest I got to thinking about it was, I remember distinctly being on the plane in February waiting to taxi to come back to see my family, desperately wanting to see my family and thinking a few things, thinking 
I never should throw myself into a movie like I just have done because without my wife and kids there, I was going in on Saturdays. I wasn't socializing very much. I was, I was, I eat, drank and slept that movie in a kind of unhealthy way. And I also knew that for every interview that I would go into with a director for the next five, six, seven, eight years, this movie would be talked about. Not because I thought it was going to be a big hit, but just because I knew as someone said to me, a picture editor said to me when I first got here, the, the thing you've got on your side is Edgar Wright is a, is a filmmaker's filmmaker. And I knew that filmmakers would be appreciating the, the work that had been done on it. Fast forward, we previewed it and it got a great reception. And before it was even released, I had a phone call from another mixer who was doing the Portuguese version. And I didn't even particularly, I'd met him a couple of times. He was doing a foreign language version of the movie. And he called me up and he said, hey, man. He said, listen, it's Gary here. I was, and I, I wonder what he wants. He said, I just want you to know. He said, I'm just doing the foreign version of Baby Driver. And it's blowing my mind. It's like I've, I haven't seen anything like this for years. And then when it came out, I was getting so many calls from people. And you've got to remember, this is little me who spent most of my career in London, 10 years wanting to come over to Los Angeles. And I'm getting emails from the likes of Andy Nelson and, you know, other people, you know, too numerous to mention, not because they've been nominated yet, not, not at all, but they were just congratulating me on what they thought was a fine piece of work for the sound community. And that was like that. I think the movie came out in June and the nominations weren't until February. So I had many months of people coming up to me saying, get your tux ready. You know, you're going to need it. And, and, <laughs> and, and it became such a kind of, I, I mean, it was lovely to hear, but it, was, it then got very pressurized. Then the whole Kevin Spacey thing happened where it looked like, you know, everything, anything to do with Kevin Spacey was going to, uh, you know, was toxic. And so I was convinced, I was kind of convinced it wasn't going to happen. But I said to my two boys, Oscar and Sonny, I said, look, the nominations are tomorrow morning. It's like five o'clock here, live stream. I said, do you want me to get you up? And there's, there's a chance. And of course, what happened was I got two nominations and it was jumping on the bed and it was lovely. Very long-winded way to answer your question, but it, it is, it's amazing. It, it was amazing for a whole variety of reasons. But the main two things that those nominations meant to me was one is I had spent 30 or something years trying to get somewhere. I, don't, I didn't know where it was, but you know, I, I became part of this facility in London and I sold and got out of that because I wanted to be a big independent sound supervisor in London. And then once I kind of managed to do that, I moved over to America and joined one company. And then I went to another company and I was constantly trying to chase something, but I didn't know what. When I got those nominations, I felt like I'd got it. It was this moment of I've, whatever it is I've been looking, whatever it is I've been trying to achieve, I think I've done it. So that was great. And then also, I think the industry a little bit didn't really know who I was, even though I've been doing what I think, you know, I, and I'm more than happy to say my career, when I, when I hang up my hat, I think there's going to be a before baby driver and an after baby driver. And it's that simple. So, you know, those nominations, I didn't win, but, um, but the nominations are amazing. And it would have been lovely to win. And uh, I had the had being nominated twice, which obviously doesn't happen now. I had that rare moment of when I didn't win the first time, it was like, oh, damn. Oh, but I've got a second. I've got a second go. But it was it was just it was great. It was just a fantastic and amazing experience for a whole variety of reasons. People check out the IMDb for Julian. There's a ton of work you've done. Really notable stuff on there. 
there's a lot of stuff we should forget also it should be, <laughs> <laughs> it should we, be pointed out <laughs> we, everybody's got to stay busy as you say let's, talk about, the, let's talk about the really bad ones <laughs> we'll, we'll bring you back for some of those julian as well <laughs> i'm curious about the time frame and when last night in soho gets kicked off and how covid played a role in this production so I finished the mix on Soho at the beginning of December last year. So, you know, a good 10 months ago, which is pretty rare these days. And the mix was due to finish the year before then anyway. I think we were supposed to finish mixing in January 2019. Would that be right? You know, of course, what happened was COVID hit just before Edgar had done his pickup shoots that he wanted to do. So the whole production was frozen. like. A lot of the world was and we just didn't know when it was going to pick up or pick up again or, or when so i flew back here i was lucky enough to be doing trial of the chicago seven which aaron desperately wanted to get out before the election so that that was not going to stop he was in final cut for that show and we we dubbed that here in complete lockdown with only us and chris nolan doing tenant on the warner brothers lot so I was lucky that I, I was uh, employed throughout that period. But what it meant for the show was that I couldn't, when the crew did start back up again, I obviously couldn't go back over there to be there for the entirety of the time. So what would happen is, you know, as, as like the rest of the world, Zoom became a big thing and they would send me sessions over on a Friday for me to review over the weekend. And then I would make notes and give notes back on to them on the Monday morning. So we just learned to adapt and, w and work with it. Eventually, I think Edgar was one of the first people to, when he did his pickup shoots, I think it was one of the first productions to go in London. So they were a bit of a test case for the whole COVID work environment. But it was successful and, um, you know, he got what he wanted. And we, yeah, so we finished it in December of last year. So it's strange because, you know, having done two or three movies since, I'd kind of flushed out a lot of the kind of, things that are in my brain about it and uh when i was asked to uh give a chat to someone about it i you know literally had to kind of watch the movie again just to remind myself of all the things that we've done because there's a few other productions that have gone through my tiny brain in between so yeah it was a year later than we all had anticipated but just you know glad that it got finished uh, julian you mentioned earlier that you have been carrying a lot of the same post-production sound team from film to film. Uh, is that true for this film as well, for Soho, that these are folks you'd worked with before? And sort of how was that structured for your team? Yeah, they're my go-to guys, regardless of anything else. You know, they're just top, top talented people with, you know, no attitude. They're just, they're just great. And as it is, because I'm not London-based anymore, I don't know who the players are over there. I don't know who the... It's, you know, I, I lose contact with London. The only time I go back to London is to do the Edgar movies. So everybody on Last Night in Soho, apart from Jacob, who is our assistant, had worked on one, two, three, all or even all of Edgar's movies before. You know, like I said, Dan Morgan, who he is co-supervising because of the COVID. Dan had to do a lot more than he normally would do because of my absence. And so he became co-supervisor. But, you know, he's done, he's worked with Edgar since Shaun of the Dead. So again, it's imperative to have people who know how Edgar's got a very particular way of working. And it's important to have that shorthand so that no time is wasted on, you know, any of the other stuff. So yeah, every, everyone apart from Jacob had either worked on Scott Pilgrim 
all of them. Uh, and, it, and in fact, other movies that, are, that Edgar had produced, like Attack of the Block, you know, Jeremy Price did most of the sound design for Attack of the Block, which, which Edgar didn't direct, Joe Cornish did, but Edgar produced. Now, Julian, you're credited as the re-recording mixer and, as you just mentioned, the co-supervising sound editor. Is it usual for one person to play both of those roles, or is that a result of your relationship with Edgar or just sort of your history with him? I'm trying to get a better sense of how your team is structured and if it's different than a typical sound post-production team might be set up. I would say it's becoming more common. It's definitely... I'm very lucky that I managed to start. I have been mixing for, on TV projects and various things over the years. But when I decided I actually wanted to mix the movies that I was involved in, I was very lucky that I, on the world's end, I just said to myself, right, this is what I'm going to do. And I don't think I even said it to Edgar. I just, he just turned up for the mix and I'm on the desk and he didn't question it. And that's a very privileged thing to be able to do. You know, in the old days, not so true now, you'd have people working in the projection room who'd be there for 20 years before they got anywhere near the board. So I was very lucky in that regard. And there are, it's kind of split. More people are mixing now than ever before because the technology is, in the old days, the only mixing desks were these hugely expensive things that are on these dub stages that were going out $1,500 an hour. Now it's the same technology that everyone's got on their Pro Tools. So it's a lot more accessible. Now that said, there are still supervisors who don't mix, which is totally valid. And there are supervisors who also mix, which is also valid. As with every walk of life, there are people who are extremely good at some things. There are people who are average at some things. There are people who are poor at some things. You know, I'm, I'm terrible at some things. And there has been in the past, you know, supervisor mixers who perhaps aren't the best mixers who have maybe given a bit of a bad reputation to those who can do the two things. When I first got here, here's a measure how much it's changed. When I got to Hollywood, Eight years ago, I remember a supervisor saying to me, oh, so you're a mixer as well, are you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with a mixer who does it 24-7 because they're going to be better than you are. <laughs> and that same supervisor now kind of mixes because that's just the way it is. I mean, there's a cost benefit to the production for doing it, but also there is a cohesiveness as well for someone who's been on the movie for the past six months and has had many conversations with the director to then be the person who's mixing it now i should also say that i am also the other person who's just the mixer who can you know for aaron's movies i don't supervise i just come on and mix not only because i don't want to shoot myself in the foot but there is also a plus point to someone coming in with fresh eyes and giving that point of view to the process as well so somewhere in between you know as a mixer, I try to be everything that I have seen in my career that is the good side and everything that's bad, I've tried to discard. And so as a mixer, I don't want to say this is my mix and I've got this now and don't want to listen to other people's opinions. But equally, I want to be able to offer my side of the perspective and see if I can help improve the mix and make suggestions. Let's talk about some of the specific challenges that came up on the Soho project in terms of how the sound came together? I think it's probably just worth noting that obviously it's a movie that at times is based in the 60s and a lot of the references that Edgar had given me were movies from the 60s and the way that Edgar had shot it was very, I call it, I'm sure he doesn't, but I call it very organic. You know, there was a lot of stuff that was done in camera and it's not just visual effects 
to that point, we spent a lot of time trying to conceive of how to try and, you know, every time you do a movie, you want it to be unique. You can't always do that, but you, I feel the pressure to try and do something that, or some elements that have not necessarily been done before or do them in a new way and trying to keep it fresh. And so me and the sound team sat down and with Edgar and we came up with a concept of trying to make it sound like a, give it a 60s feel to it, a 60s vibe to it. And we did that with a, a variety of ways. One is that ostensibly Ellie doesn't go into her 1960s Soho until about 23 minutes into the movie. And um, I came up with an idea of making the first 23 minutes, which is modern day mono. I mean, or certainly no surround information at all and a very narrow stereo width down the front. And then when she goes into 1960 Soho, we then bloom it out completely to use the Atmos or the surround speakers so that there's a huge contrast. So that's one of the things we did. And then with regards to the sound design, we wanted everything to be very organic and kind of utilize the techniques used in the 60s and the spin echo aspect of things and treating voices. And, you know, Edgar's movies before have been very wishy and very frenetically edited and jump cuts, which he, you know, he didn't do in this movie. And likewise, we wanted this to sound different. So... Yeah, we used the, you know, we, we, when she goes into, into the 60s, we use a lot of 60s tricks and kind of stayed away from a lot of the plugins that we normally use to try and make it feel like that kind of 1960s horror film stroke acid dropping music number. You know, there's some, uh, Steve Price, of, uh, the composer, quotes Revolution Number Nine. You know, he did a lot of work also with, taking snippets of dialogue and using those in the score and repeating them round and round. And so as Ellie's journey into despair and hell, for want of a better phrase, uh, happens, we then twist all those techniques and start using them more and more throughout the movie. So, yeah, we wanted it to sound a little different from a bit more organic, a bit more warmer, rounder and organic than things that we normally, normally do. So, Jillian, when you make a decision like that, that you're going to utilize the techniques of the 60s and how you mix the film today. Is that something that you understand how they did it just because of your education in post-production sound or your experience? Or did you have to go research specifically how they got the sounds for those films to inform yourself for this film in particular? Well, I kind of, I, I, I watched a bunch of movies from, the 60s and of course the, the funny thing is actually there's not a huge amount of sound design in those sound design wasn't a thing necessarily and quite often it was musical that's where i the benefit of having steve price as a friend there's no other composer that i know that i can just call up and say hey how about you know what, what do you think to this idea so that in itself is great and then thankfully there's a lot of uh, there's a plug-in for everything these days, which is great. You know, I, I can't pretend that I went on eBay and we bought loads of reel-to-reel tape machines and got them in and, you know, did every, recorded everything out. We didn't do that, but we certainly used, you know, tape emulation plugins, watched a whole bunch of movies where, and it's, you know, you get inspiration from watching them. I wouldn't say we copied, but certainly get inspiration either by the techniques, what you're hearing, even if you don't know quite how they did it. That's both the movies. And then also you kind of, you know, inspiration, you just walk around Soho. One of the things that was interesting to slightly depart from your question about, you know, inspiration is last night in Soho has got lots of snippets of things that you wouldn't necessarily, if I was sitting 
at my sound effects library and thought to myself, okay, let's come up with London. I wouldn't even think of them. The sound team went out many a late night in Soho at 2 a.m. with microphones and just recorded really random stuff. Just never really happens. Like, you know, drunk people flirting with each other, drunk people fighting with each other. And then we think, okay, well, how can we use that? How can that kind of juxtaposition between what Soho is during the day and what Soho is during the night and then what Soho is early morning with Ellie's journey? You know, at the beginning of the movie, when she first goes up to Miss Collins' flat, you hear people outside almost joking and not really arguing and slightly drunk. And then next time you go back there, when things are starting to go a bit darker, those people are arguing a bit more and it all starts to turn a bit more sinister. So... You know, you just take inspiration from any source you can, whether it's watching an older movie, even just on the internet, like you search it for, for plugins. I just went to the, I'm very lucky to be part of the Waves family and I've got a load of the Waves plugins. And you just kind of search through there and have a listen and think, oh, this could be quite nice. And, you know, so like when we go into Soho, the dialogue goes through a tape emulate, a slight tape saturation to give it that kind of warm analog feel to it. So it's a bit of inspiration. It's a lot of experimentation. Some of it works, a lot of it doesn't work, and you just throw it out and you, you just try again. Julian, you mentioned sort of how things might sound in the morning uh, in Soho, and then that argument, as a case in point, gets more and more heated, which I think also allows us to speak to sort of the arc of the film, where it starts out more whimsical and then eventually turns nightmarish. And so from a sound perspective, how are you tracking those changes and, and what other considerations come into play? Yeah, well, that's basically it. I mean... Um... It's not necessarily a question of modern day Soho versus 60s Soho, although, of course, there is a difference there. The first time she goes into Soho, the Café de Paris, the sound design feel is much different to how it is later on in the movie. At the first time she goes in there, it's very dreamlike. And, you know, some of the characters speak with a kind of backwards reverb before they talk. And as people float past the screen, there's a very dreamy whoosh that's accompanied. There's dreamy, very subtle, dreamy whooshes to them. You know, the applause gets filtered down and it's all very kind of, ju- it's, it's not necessarily in your face. It's kind of there to be done so that as an audience, you're thinking, oh, did I, did I just hear that? Did I not just hear that? Is it happening? Is it not happening? So there's a lot going on that's not necessarily obvious, but it's pretty subtle. And then as she keeps going back into Soho and things start descending and her state of mind starts descending into some kind of you know, madness, I guess you could say, then the sound design becomes much more obvious and darker. And even things like you know, the body whooshes that we used that were nice and wispy and, and subtle become a lot more aggressive. And even the backwards reverb that's on the dialogue is pitched down. So it's much more aggressive and there's a tonal change to it. So the sonic world that Ellie inhabits reflects exactly what's going on in her head whether you know and and whether it is going on in her head or not you know that's one of the great question marks of the movie is it happening or is it just uh is it just ellie just thinking it so yeah it was a question of taking the techniques that we use early on in the soho 60s and then building on them and then just kind of twisting them further and further as the movie progresses and so talking about the arc of the movie Do you feel that that also reflects Ellie's arc as a character or are there different elements of the sound that you use around her or some of the other characters that come into play as well? That's a good question. I think it's mostly Ellie because Ellie is in pretty much every scene of the movie. Is she she in every scene of the movie? And so I always felt like 
rightly or wrongly, I felt in the same way when we did Baby Driver, what we were trying to do was paint a sonic picture of what was happening to Baby with his tinnitus and how he was hearing stuff. I felt that that's what we were trying to do with Ellie and how she was hearing stuff and how she was experiencing stuff. And that thing of like, you know, the, the repeating dialogue lines that happen throughout the movie and they progress and become weirder and weirder with her state of mind. That's kind of what I wanted. I think we all wanted to do was to help tell the story. And you can tell I'm hesitating saying that because Edgar needs no help telling a story. But our role was to sonically help tell the story of how Ellie was perceiving everything. And that goes back to the, the mono 23, first 23 minutes. I felt like she daydreams about the 60s Soho and she, she, loves, she loves the 60s so much that perhaps the modern day is a bit boring to her. Perhaps she sees everyday life as mono and not very surrounding. And therefore that when she does eventually go into this thing that she's been dreaming of, bang, that's when we open it all up. So yeah, it was very much following Ellie's point of view throughout the movie. So before we turn our attention to some specific scenes, there's one aspect of Edgar Wright's films that carries through, and that is his propensity for using needle drops or specific selections of music in the film. How does that end up affecting your work? Well, obviously it influences greatly the pleasure of those needle drops. I mean, there's pleasure in there's pleasure in just the needle drops. Frequently, when I've mixed Edgar movies, I'm sitting there and listening to whatever it is, whatever track it is, over and over again. And I think to myself, geez, I'm being paid to do this. This is amazing. It's great. I'm being paid to listen to these music cues. And then we also have the luxury that Edgar writes those needle drops into the, the script. And so they don't change. And so we know that we can build off them and we know quite often what happens is you'll be on a final mix dub stage and then something's not being cleared and it needs to get swapped out or certainly as you're in the editorial stage you know those music cues are being figured out as you go along with Edgar that's not necessarily the case at all even to the point of I think both on Baby Driver and on this movie as I was reading the script I'd be on Spotify and would tag all the, you know, because I hadn't heard of all these, um, a lot of them I had, but some of them, you know, because he does quite rare cuts of music. And so I'd make my own Last Night in Soho playlist just to play in the car and try and get a sense of that vibe. And it just helps you sit you sit you into what it is Edgar's trying to achieve, even just as a, as a vibe, you know, it just really helps. So Julian, talk to me about the club scene specifically. Obviously, we've got needle drops in there, but they also take place at various stages along Ellie's arc. The early scenes of the club, they sound very different from some of the later scenes. Talk to me some more about that process and, and what really stood out about making those work. Well, the first time she goes into Soho, there's an English recording artist who I, I, I suspect wasn't over here, a big artist. She was called Scylla Black. And... That song, You Are My World, is a Scylla Black song. And there's someone obviously playing Scylla Black on the stage. So in the first instance, just musically, we had the fun of trying to make that needle drop cue sound as luscious as possible. So there's a kind of pre-mixing that happens there with regards to art mixing that so it sounds amazing in Atmos. We ran it through RX, uh, a plugin called rx8 advanced where you can then separate the vocals so that i had control when we cut to the lady who's playing Scylla, i can then push the vocals a little bit to make it feel like a live recording and then stephen price basically reorchestrated that song at abbey road 
and rescored it. And so not only did I have the original source cue, I had these amazing strings. So when she's walking down that alley and then she walks out into the street and there's the Thunderball marquee, the thing that really kind of lights up the auditorium is Steve's strings that have been composed to work perfectly with it. So you've got the musical aspect there, which is obviously it's very lush. And then, you know, as I said before, we wanted this sequence to sound rich and almost ethereal. You know, we did things with filtering. There's after that Scylla track plays and the audience is applauding, we mix in reversed applause and filtered applauses just to give it a weird kind of um, a weird feel to it. Again, you don't necessarily, it shouldn't jar you as an audience member. It just kind of makes you realize that things are a little bit strange. And so by the time that she comes back out of her first night, you know, you're set up thinking that 1960 Soho is just this magnificent, beautiful place where, you know, Sandy is going to find her dreams. And we're basically on a beautiful story that we're going to follow someone through their dreams, making it in Soho. And I think that only happens, only happens for two flashbacks. And then the third flashback, you know, the second flashback is where Anya does that amazing rendition of Downtown, which is very simplistic sound wise. We're very captivating just because of Anya's voice and she knocks it out of the park. So, you know, by those two times, you're, you know, you're, you're convinced that you're going to see one kind of movie. And then the third time she puts downtown on the record player and it turns into a puppet on a string where you see this woman on the stage who is, you know, this performer and it's not Sandy and Sandy's in the background. And you suddenly realize that, hang on, stuff is going on here. And this is not the movie I thought it was going to be. And I, and I love it because the lyrics of Puppet on a String are actually quite dark if you think about it. So you've got this joyful song happening and this performance where these lewd men are looking at all these scantily clad women. And that's the point where you realise that actually this is not how it's going to be. This, this story is going to unfold. It's going to take a different path. That's where we start to really kind of have fun with the sound design, where we have fun with the Atmos and the surround elements of it. You know, whether it's Jack pounding on the door on Sandy's dressing room that's, you know, coming from the surrounds to Sandy blowing out smoke that fills out the auditorium. And then she goes back and basically it turns out she's being pimped out by Jack, which is clearly not what the deal was. As she runs away, she goes behind stage to the dressing rooms. And Edgar does this amazing kind of tracking shot of all these girls who are kind of going through their own world of, you know, it's just, I love it as a sequence because you've got on one hand the happy exterior in the club of this kind of joyful puppet on a string and it's all fun and, uh, you know, it's, it, there's nothing going on here. And then behind the stage, you've just got craziness going on between drugs and sexual exploits and, you know, girls who have run away from home. You know, that's where we just start amping it up. It, it's a tracking shot where we throw the kitchen, everything that we've deployed at that point up to that moment, we then kind of twist and ramp up up to the moment where she slams the door back in the in the flat and it goes completely quiet. And that's where the first, there's a great kind of uh, a jump out of your seat moment where you think that the scene has ended and there's a hand grab that you think is the end of the scene and it turns out it's not. And it, you know, it, was, it was fun watching it at the premiere last week. You see half the audience <laughs> jump out of there, taking a few years off the audience. <laughs> so yeah, it's fun to track that journey that's going on for sure. So Ellie's art gets increasingly frenetic. She starts to see visions. Talk to me about ramping some of those up from a sound perspective and then taking it back down and sort of resetting for the audience before another one of those scenes sets in. I would say that was one of the challenges of the mix 
And I think I hope we've done it. I think we've done it. I desperately did not. You know, we we strive to make it an enjoyable listening experience for people. I saw something on Facebook with someone who was at the premiere who said, "Amazing film, sounded great. A little loud, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another time." And I thought to myself, "Is it a little loud?" But then I spoke to like four other sound people who were like, "It was perfect." And I say this because it was it was a constant not battle, but we had to check ourselves. There's so much happening. You know, once Ellie descends into her despair. There's an awful lot happening and there's a lot of sequences where there's an awful lot happening. And so we were sonically trying to make it simmer and build and not go too fast too soon. In fact, Edgar was very responsible and he would say to us, look, I think now is not the time ingredients wise where we need to have X, Y and Z. Let's just have X. Let's save the rest for the next sequence and then save some more for the for the following sequence. Yeah, I think we were restrained where we needed to be. We, we spent a lot of time desperately trying to be restrained. And it's very easy to let things, and it does, to let things run away from you. And it just become a bit of a, a mess of noise. Again, having a working relationship with everyone, whereby we all know by the time we get to that dub stage, those tracks have been in the Avid for a few months. Everyone knows what's what. There's the, there's a scene in Carnaby Street where Ellie's running away from the, what we call the Shadow Men, which were the the faceless men who were in grey. They then come from the sixties and start appearing into the modern day Soho. So that sequence is actually full of quite a few sixties sound motifs. But also Steve is doing an awful lot in the score with regards to taking stuff and putting it within the score that's also timed off the Sandy Shore track. So. It's a long way of saying that without us all knowing what it was we were doing or what the respective departments were supplying, it would have turned into an absolute mess and would have it could it could have very easily turned into a sonic mess. And I I hope and I don't I think we we managed to avoid that by everyone being very cognizant of that at the start and making sure that we did pull back where we needed to pull back. And you know, in the same way of I worked with Mike Figgis early on in my career and on leaving Las Vegas. I remember him saying to me, the loud parts can only be loud, really, if you're going to make it quiet beforehand. And his case in point being the quiet bits are just as important as the loud bits. And that's always stayed with me. So I feel like that's something that was in the back of my mind when we were making Soho. What other scenes did you find particularly challenging with the soundscape of this movie? I would say the sound of the Shadow Men, we went through a lot of iterations of the sound of those people, ghosts, monsters, because we wanted it to sound very, it's very easy to do those sounds. You can put, you know, lion roars and alien sounds. And and we went through a long process of trying different things because we wanted it to sound analog and warm. I would love to say I start a movie off and I know exactly what everything is going to sound like and I I know how it should be. That's not the case at all. I probably started grating on my great sound team because, you know, I would just say to them, it's not right. But I couldn't say what it was. I just didn't know what was what. I didn't even know what was not working. I just knew that it wasn't working. And then Dan came up with this idea of when the shadow men first appear at the bottom of Ellie's bed, there's a line that one of the guys says, which is, that's a lovely name. There's a whole sequence, actually, in a, one of the nightclubs where she's being bought champagne. And they all say, they all think they're being humorous and, a, and very charming by saying that's a lovely name. And so Dan took these instances and started filtering them in, with a kind of like very extreme 
low pass filter. That's a lovely name. And um, he hit upon this thing where we just realized that it was not necessarily a question of what the vocals they were making in real life, for want of a better phrase, but it was the emotive suggestion of what they were about. And that effect with those words was so creepy. It was so unbelievably creepy. And it was everything that I was looking for. It was an analog effect. It was very spooky for no particular reason. It had a tie and it had meaning. And it was the kind of thing that we could then use elsewhere in the movie once the audience tied it in with, hopefully they tie in with these shadow men, they understand why it's being used and its meaning. So that was definitely one of the challenges. I mean, there are, there's, there's, it's always a puzzle. I can't speak for other supervisors. I find it a bunch of challenges that are there to be solved and cracked and worked out. And that was one of the ones that took the longest and the one we didn't find the answer until quite near the final mix. So the finale of the movie itself, it almost has its own arc where there's initially this reveal over T, it turns into a conflict, and then finally there's sort of a denouement in the aftermath with the ambulances and such. I'd like to hear more about how you approach wrapping things up. Well, I think it's actually sonically talking about stripping back as we've done and knowing when to strip back. That, that last act, that last chunk of the movie is definitely an exercise in actually stripping down. I mean, other than when Ellie goes into her bedroom and there's this attack scene where these, again, I don't, I don't know how much to reveal, but, but they're, they're these, you know, I've seen the trailer, the hands come out of the, the walls and the floor. And, you know, that, and we've warned them, Julian, if they've gotten yeah. this far, we told yeah. them up front, you, so. <laughs> you deserve it. Um, but that starts off with this big reveal with this amazing performance of Dinah Rigg, like the late Dinah Rigg. And which just, I, 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 I'm blown away by, it. you know, it's an amazing performance by anyone, let alone someone of that age, where the twist comes into play. And then what happens is, you know, there's this whole sequence on the stairs where Ellie's being drugged. You know, she's imagining stuff that's going on that's not actually going on. And it's a, ostensibly, it's a music sequence. You know, it turns into a, a musical sequence with very little in the way of sound design other than affecting the musical piece. And again, Steve Price did this amazing job of scrolling around the musical cue and morphing it. So it's a question of like going from a very silent, quite a long scene with Miss Collins with the reveal to this musical sequence to then this kind of big sound design sequence of um, the shadow men trying to attack Ellie or what we think is them trying to attack Ellie and then realizing that that's not necessarily the case. And we really are spoiling it for anyone, but um, <laughs> that's not the case at all. And fun enough, the whole sequence with the ambulance, there was lots of sound on there. And it was in the final mix that I turned to Edgar and said, look, or maybe it was the 10 mix. Could have been the 10 mix. I can't remember. And just said to Edgar, why don't we play just music, just score, which I don't think we've ever done on an Edgar Wright movie. And for that reason, I love the idea of doing it. And Edgar loved it as well. He was like, this is just, this just works perfectly. Let's sonically, the audience have gone through, I mean, the audience has gone through a lot, period, let alone sonically. So let's just now take it down and play it on the, on the soft music. So yeah, you're right. There's a bunch of sequences that are sonically very different that, are, that have a common thread going through them. So Julian, we have engaged in some spoilers, but again, I think breaking down all the work you've done here, how do you think it turned out? 
I'm really happy with it. I mean, I'm really happy with anything. I, I mean, I'm one of these people that I desperately try and just keep working at it as, you know, never stop until, you know, the last moment, until they, until the Dolby man turns up. And in fact, even when the Dolby man is there, you're still making changes. Um, I'm very proud of it because it is so sonically different to anything that I've done before. And it's, I mean, it's so different to anything Egg has done before, and it's possibly very different to anything that's been done before. I don't know if it's a, an art house commercial movie or if it's a commercial art house movie, but I applaud Edgar 100%. He's going down a road of discovery for himself, I feel, and we've not had this conversation, but you, know, you can just see his past work and you see his previous titles and then you look at Baby Driver and then you look at this and you, you see a filmmaker who is becoming more confident and more um, taking perhaps bigger risks with his filmmaking, which I think is just, which I love. And I, I'm very pleased to be part of it and to be given the opportunity like Edgar does, he lets you come up with anything and try it out. So I'm very happy with it. I hope people see it in the cinema because Obviously, that's the best sound system you can get. And hopefully they take some enjoyment from not just the movie, but from the Sonicscape that we've created. Well, Julian, I enjoyed the movie very much. I am also looking forward to what uh, you work on with Edgar next. In the meantime, though, what other projects are you working on? I've just finished working with uh, Mr. George Clooney on his movie, The Tender Bar, which is a Ben Affleck movie, which was great. It was lovely. I can't speak highly enough of Mr. Clooney. He is the lovely man that everyone says he is. That was great. And then um, today, literally today, in the next two hours, I finish my work on Being the Ricardos, which is the next Aaron Sorkin movie, which is, again, like I've said before, I love my job because it's so different like from one movie to the next. So I finished that and then I'm on to a DreamWorks animated movie that I've been looking after for the past six months. We start mixing that in about three weeks time. I think that's out in April of next year called The Bad Guys. So a very bag of stuff, which is great. I, I love the variety that um, I managed to get in my life with regards to the work aspect. It's great. Julian, glad you're staying busy. Thanks so much for taking time today to talk to us about Last Night in Soho. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, and nice to meet you, Skip. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying Season 9 as much as I am. If you're new to the podcast, check out some of our past episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. As always, I appreciate those of you who keep coming back for more. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. Sorry, Julian, I'm trying to think on the fly, seeing if this has been a good question or not. I thought you were going to have a stroke. <laughs> no, it's frozen. <laughs> and then it uh, my wife will send you the audio and you can edit the last podcast of my career. It's totally fine. <laughs>